Welcome to this week's ATP podcast, coming to you from Roland Garros, where we're just finishing off the third round matches, some of them still on court. I'm Chris Bowers, and with me to look back on the first week of action in Paris and discuss what it might all mean ahead of week two, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the former New York Times tennis correspondent Christopher Clary and the former British player and now coach and commentator Lucy Arle. Chris, it's your first day as a, well, I don't know if you call you a freelance, certainly as a full-time author. Uh, does it feel weird after your um, 32 years with the New York Times? I have a lot of goals for this next phase, Chris, and you and I go back a long way, but one of my goals is to get to bed a little bit earlier. I feel like I've closed too many press rooms in too many places over the last 32 years, and there's been some good reasons for it. It's been great, but so far I'm feeling like I'm getting more rest, so my 24 hours of the new life. Now, one of your projects is uh, you're writing a book with Rafael Nadal, so it would be quite good to have him here. Um, are you missing him? Actually, it's not with Rafa. No, no, I, I'm an independent book, just like the one I did on Federer. Um, this is called The Warrior. The one on Federer was called The Master. Don't really want to do books with people. I feel like it's a better journalistic endeavor if you can do it on your own. Yeah, I'll, Obviously, it takes I'll away some, that. Of, some, of the, uh, some of the reach. But no, it's just based on, on all the interviews that I've done over the years with Nadal and his team. And I followed him from the beginning of his pro career. I met him when he was 17 at Wimbledon back in 03. Uh, saw his first pro matches at the slam level. And I've just sort of charted him all the way through. And uh, I have a big connection to Roland Garros, having uh, lived here in Paris. Lived just around the corner for a while, didn't you? A few blocks away when I was first married. My wife's French. So I I feel like I got deep connections to Spain and to to this tournament in particular. So I'm eager to kind of bring it all together. And when's the Warrior coming out? Next year. We don't know exactly when. Depends what what, uh, Nadal does, how how he comes back, when he comes back, if he comes back. You'll have to have a chapter on birthdays because most of the time he has his birthday here. But this week he had his birthday in hospital with some procedure on his psoas muscle i'm assuming one of his specialists could only do it on that day i don't think that's would, nobody in their right mind would choose to do a exploratory surgery on the night before their birthday or whatever it was but um it sounded like it was more of an investigative thing uh, it didn't sound like it was full-blown surgery necessarily but uh, from what i heard from some people who know um, that kind of um, injury it's very unusual to do that kind of uh, of an endoscopic surgery it's not even arthroscopic because the, uh, the psoas is not a joint endoscopic surgery it's very rare to, to even do it so I think really uh, Rafa's grasping for answers here a little bit right now. Lucy in your time as a coach have you come across the psoas in muscle injury? Well I think probably the the first time I started to to get to know about it a bit more was with Andy Murray obviously with the surgery that he had and, and again when they were looking into what the issues were and how they could perhaps solve it but it's yeah, I mean, it, it is a muscle that as a, well, particularly as a, a tennis player and other athletes that you, you do use. But I think, as Chris said, I think, you know, the fact that, I mean, he is, he's digging deep, isn't he? He's trying to find solutions, Nadal, which is, I mean, it's so commendable given with all that he's achieved, but he's desperate to try and find a way to get back out on the court and, and hopefully be back in action next year. Have you missed him? Of course. I mean, Nadal's been here ever since most people can remember all that he's achieved that you do you do obviously miss him but I think as with the way of the world we we do then continue don't we and and watch what's in front of us and and certainly so far Roland Garris hasn't disappointed there's been a whole heap of stories the the draws certainly opening up on the men's side and the women's side so I think Yes, I have certainly missed him not being here, but I think uh, I've, I've also very much, as always, enjoyed the tennis that has been happening. 
Chris, have you missed him? I listened to Paul McNamee he had an interesting comment, the you know, former fine Australian player and Australian Open tournament director. He said, strangely enough, he came from Australia thinking that it would feel like there was a huge hole in the draw. But because Carlos Alcaraz has become such a big deal so quickly and there's so much interest in him, he's filling kind of the air and space that Rafa filled for all those years in terms of on the schedule and also in terms of just where the interest levels are. And he's Spanish, um, not the same style of play, but it's kind of interesting. And so Paul was sort of blown away by the fact that it's like the baton's been passed you know, very quickly. Obviously, Carlos has a long, long, long way to go to come close to Rafa's achievements. But in terms of what the interest levels are here in Paris, I walk around uh, the city, I know it well, talk to people, and they all, they all say the same thing. They want to see this guy play. They're really interested. So he's got breakout potential in a lot of cultures, I think. Yeah, I wonder whether also the weather, which has been so good for the past week, has made us all feel so good that in a way anything could have happened this year. I mean, Nadal would have loved the weather, of course. It's just very much his conditions. But I just wonder whether it's been that kind of week where it doesn't matter who'd been in the draw. We would have found something because everyone's feeling good in the sunshine. Yeah, I think also... You know, Paris went through a lot, like everybody did with the pandemic, and even though it's been a little while now, people still have that memory. So there's, it's really a feeling of sort of renewal, regeneration, excitement about the tournament. I mean, it was almost impossible to get a ticket this year, which really hasn't always been the case. Many people have talked to me about, you know, can't get a ticket, tried everything, you can't do it. So I think there was already a lot of buzz on the tournament before, and um, people want to get back to regular life, and, and this weather is amazing. And Paris, if, if you've been here for the last few months, has not been like this. Somebody said it's rained 80 out of 90 days. So even though it seems like this is the norm now, it is not, and they're enjoying it. Okay, so moment or highlight of the week. Start with you, Lucy. Well, we had this discussion before we came on air, and I know Chris is going to go for, for Monfils. I think probably all of us are. So I'll, I'll, I'll find a different I'm not. One. I actually um, was uh, due on to commentate after the Altmaier Sinner match, which obviously went on for quite a while, nearly five and a half hours, and... Just watching the latter stages of that Altmaier saving match points, and of course had match points in the fourth set, and Altmaier eventually being able to close it out with an ace, and then the emotional scenes on Suzanne Longlon was quite incredible. I mean, Marion Bartoli had to wait quite a while for Daniel Altmaier to actually be able to speak. I mean, he was in tears, as was his team, as was, I think, most of most of the crowd out there. So that was pretty memorable. Well, that would have to be my uh, pick of the first week. I commentated on that match, all five hours, 26 of it. And it was a privilege. It really was. And what was good about it was not just, I mean, you can have long matches which don't necessarily live in the memory, but the varied tennis. And I've always had this belief, you've got to have contrasts in styles. This is why I get excited about players like, well, Chapovalov's hit a bit of a plateau at the moment, but I'm excited about Mazzetti. I'm excited about Sebi Korda. I'm excited about the players who bring some flair. And Altmaier played a different game to Sinner. And you had that contrast in styles and there were so many long points. And a couple of times in commentary, I said to my co-commentator, who was uh, Gilles Muller, why don't coaches teach the one-handed backhand? It's not right for everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying it's right for everybody. But if only people gave kids, the right kids who might benefit from the one-hander at the age of 10, 11, 12, the time, the way someone like Dominic Team had the time, 
to really try it and see if they become a better player with it. That I think tennis would have so much variety because Altmaier, his backhand down the line was glorious throughout that match and it just added something special to make that match so watchable, regardless of the time, regardless of the upset. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's uh, really, really important to keep that in the game in some way, but I mean, it is a Darwinian thing. I mean, either it works or it doesn't, and the numbers will tell you and the results will tell you. Um, on the women's side, if I'm not mistaken, there are only two players in the top 100 with one hand. Golubic right and Parry. Um, no, actually, I don't think Golubic is in the top 100 anymore. I think it's Tatiana Maria is in the top 100. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, De- and Deanne Perry, who, who lost to Andreva the other day. Beautiful one-hander in her case, but there just aren't any on the WTA, and they seem like they're fewer and fewer. At least Perry's young. On the men's side, I think we're at about 14 or 15 in the top 100, so it looks a little bit healthier. And obviously you got young stars like Sitsipas and Musetti, Shapovalov, who have the shot. And a lot of them are Federer disciples, you know, coming from having seen it, or, or Vavrenka disciples as well. So if you have that model that works, especially you know in, in Stan's case where he could hit the ball above the shoulder on the one-hander and, and do damage with it, I think there's a reason to keep it in the game. And I couldn't agree with you more. Visually, for the fans, they love it. And um, if there's a way to preserve it. Last thing I'd say, too, is I heard you know a few years ago there was more optimism because a lot of kids are starting with the lower bouncing balls, obviously with the orange and yellow balls. Before when you're learning with a high bouncing ball, one-hander is very, very tough when you're young. But now it's a little bit easier to get technique down because it's bouncing at a more normal height. So we'll see what happens with that. Well, I think as well, I mean, from the perspective of a, of a coach, I actually think that, you know, when they are little, and as you say, Chris, with, with the fact that we do have the, uh, the sponge ball and the red ball, orange ball and, and green ball, so it's, it's easier to really perfect the technique when they're younger. It's the whole point of being able to use those as, as coaching aids. It's much easier to add rather than take away. So actually, if I'm working with little ones, I'll encourage them to experiment and and use the single hander, whether they're hitting over the top of it or using it for a slice. Obviously, it's then going to adapt well for the volley. So hopefully, maybe some coaches will start to look to do that. Good point. Uh, Chris, we didn't allow you to give your moment of the week. You wanted to go for Monfils, yes? It's funny how we're all really pulled. Uh, I'm sorry to steal your, your moments. I apologize for that. I didn't mean to. <laughs> but um, we're all pulled to the, to the epic marathons, aren't we? It's funny how that works, isn't it? And it's best of five argument. But no, I mean, I've just, like all of us, I've followed Monfils' uh, path all through his career. I'm, I'm kind of tired of always hearing he's, he's an underachiever. And you know, maybe he's not. Maybe it's just the way he's, he's built. But in any case, he's a big moment, big setting kind of player. And that setting the other night, you know, at this stage of his career, in his late 30s, with all that, you know, he's been through with injuries. He was top tennis, you know, two or three years ago and, and playing some great late career tennis. And also what his wife, Alina Svitolina, has been through with Ukraine and, and having their first child. As I talked to Svitolina recently and it was an amazingly poignant combination of joy and sadness in the last year or two. And, you know, Giles an empath. I'm sure he feels all that. And so... All the emotions that came out when he came back from four love down in the fifth the other night. I mean, that was extraordinary after he finished it off, kind of hobbled to the net and shook Baez's hand. And then just, it just lost it in a beautiful way. It was powerful, beautiful. I got goosebumps watching it. And I'm kind of getting goosebumps right now talking about it. And, you know, he didn't play another match, but I don't think he needed to. I think he got what he came for, you know. It begs the question, are we judging success in the wrong way? Because, I mean, he's semi-finalist here in 2008, so... You know, he's had good runs here at Roland Garros, but actually, somebody who gives us one memorable performance like that, is it perhaps not as successful as the consistent player whose results get rewarded by the ranking system? 
All I'd say about, about Monfils is I think there's a little bit of a, I guess the unfair part is you see his physical gifts and you see what he can do. And all the coaches have been saying that since he was 17 or 18 years old when he was the number one junior in the world. And so you think automatically that's going to translate to just huge big match, continuous success. I mean, I've had a number of athletes say he's the best athlete they've ever seen play tennis. I'm not sure that's true, but I think that's what sets the baseline where it is. And also there's that hunger from the French for another champion. They had this you know, great generation of new musketeers with Sanga and Simon and Monfils and Gasquet. And it never quite happened, you know, probably because of the level of competition. So I think all that gets factored in. And it's, it's, I think Monfils feels it, everybody feels it. So it's just nice that he gets a moment like the other night at this stage that he'll never forget. Let's move on to the top two players left in, and that's Alcaraz and Djokovic, who are in the same half of the draw. Medvedev was world number two, but he went out first round. We'll come back to him in a minute. But Alcaraz and Djokovic on course for playing in the semi-finals. I mean, obviously we're excited about that, but is it actually now even more regrettable that they're in the same half of the draw, uh, given that the bottom half seems to have lost a lot of its big names? Or could it actually create the most superb spectacle if they get there in Friday semis well, I think we've got to look at it that way I mean the, the draws what it is and it's done on the rankings and obviously Medvedev he was able to get himself seeded to, to number two and that then left Djokovic and Alcaraz in the top half we obviously had the situation with that match with Nadal and Djokovic where uh, they had that epic semi-final so it, it could be similar um, I mean, we've only had one match, haven't we, where they've played each other because of various reasons with injuries and Djokovic not being able to, to travel to certain tournaments. They're, they haven't actually played each other other than in Madrid. So I think everyone's hoping that it happens and certainly I'm looking forward to it. I think the form that I've seen so far, certainly from Alcaraz, I think something that they do at Roland Garros in the lead-up week. Chris, you were saying how it's impossible to get a ticket. For those that couldn't get a ticket, it might actually be worth coming the few days before the event actually starts because I watched Alcaraz play Sitsipas in, in a practice match out on Susan Longland. And, I mean, he looked unbelievable. It was absolutely packed, as was most of Qualies. So you still get that atmosphere and... You know, if you if you come in, you get the opportunity to watch the top players. Alcaraz is playing unbelievably well. Djokovic, he's had some tight matches. He's not dropped a set, but every match he's had to go to at least one tie break. There's a potential issue perhaps with his leg. He had treatment against Davidovic Fakina. So potential question marks, but as we've seen so often with Djokovic, I'm sure he'll find his way through. And I, I don't think that one will disappoint if they do make it to the semis. You're referring to the Djokovic-Nadal semi-final from 2013 when we had a rather disappointing Nadal-Ferrer final. But Chris, the other one that comes to mind is 2005 when Federer and Nadal were in the top half of the draw. They played in a semi-final with Puerta and Davidenko playing in the other one. And because they played second, they went late into the night and it was only because Nadal won in four that they were able to finish. And yet, sometimes you get the better matches in the semis, in particular that Djokovic-Nadal in 2013, probably the best match they've ever played here. Yeah, uh, the, the 05 final wasn't bad. I mean, Mariano Porta did not go on to glorify himself with all the things that happened later on with the, the doping and, and all the rest, for sure not. But it was a good match on the day and, and Nadal had a, had a challenge to face. So, but I feel like 
I'm kind of with you on this match with Djokovic and, um, and Alcaraz. I want to see it as soon as we can see it because I feel like a lot of things could go wrong getting to the final. And I'd say on the bottom half of the draw, not to jinx anything, but I, my list coming in was I had Alcaraz slightly in front, Djokovic because of his physical issues and just the age factor, uh, number two. And then I had I had Rune at three. So And Rune is still alive in the bottom half of the draw. So... And so is Casper Ruud, who's played some good ball this year coming in at different times. So you can't count him out on the surface either. So it's not like the bottom half is completely, uh, you know, unpopulated. I think there's some good... Come back to the bottom half in a minute. But aren't we being a bit disrespectful of Musetti, Sitsipas and Hachanov? Could any of them dislocate Alcaraz or Djokovic between now and the semis? Definitely. No, no. I mean, Musetti loves the clay. He has an incredible uh, dynamic game, I think, in a lot of ways and huge upside. I'm just not sure he's consistent enough under under consistent attack, especially on that backhand wing, even as spectacular as it can be. I think uh, on this surface, uh, with the kind of um, penetration that Carlos is getting with his forehand and the variety that he's got, awful hard to hold up if he plays well. But if he drops off or dips, certainly possible. Well, he did beat him last time they played exactly. in the final yeah. of Hamburg last year, so he knows how to do that, obviously, over best of three sets. Mazzetti's not dropped a set yet, and as we know with the way Mazzetti beat plays, Djokovic in Monte Carlo. He did. He had a comfortable win against Norrie, but he's dangerous. I mean, when he first broke on the scenes, you, you remember in 2020 in Rome, where he beat... Uh, Nishikori and Vavrenka there before losing to, to oh I think he lost to Kupfer in the end actually I mean he can be dangerous but I think I think Alcaraz has probably got a few more gears at the moment and uh, Lucy you commentated on Juan Pablo Barillas the Peruvian who's Djokovic's next opponent thoughts on him I did I mean incredible that was he, he beat her catch late last night we finished well after 11 p.m. out on court 14 brilliant atmosphere it was jam-packed another five set match for him so there's been three five setters in a row so I'm not sure how much he'll have left in the tank because he had to pull out in Lyon he had a, a back issue I'm guessing there's no physical issues in terms of the back however you play three five set matches in a row and then you've got Djokovic it's going to be tough but fantastic for him to to get himself through to well at least the the last 16. He's from Peru, Nicholas Jarry is from Chile, there are four Argentinians, South America's doing pretty well again isn't it? Well perhaps we shouldn't be surprised given that this is probably their the top Grand Slam tournament for the South Americans given that there's so much clay in South America but um, hasn't guaranteed them success here but they're doing well. Yeah, it's not people that necessarily you would have picked to do well coming in either. Obviously, the tradition is huge there, and you watch the players on the day, and you see and you understand what's going on. But, I mean, Peru hasn't had a player go this deep, I don't think, since Luis Horna uh, at this stage, like Barrias. And I think Jerry would have come through earlier. Obviously, he had his issues as well with some things in the, off the court, but, I, but obviously his talent was, uh, was clear from the beginning, and I think it's not surprising that he's taken a while to come back because as we've seen it's very rare to be able to take a long break and, and immediately resume playing I mean, look at a guy like Zverev coming back from injury it's taking him a little while to get his game back but um, yeah Nikos has got a big game and I think he's a for sure a potential top 20 player there's a lot of players who are coming through who have a very low profile in today's tennis um, a few second third round players who uh, I'd never seen play a couple I've never even heard of are we seeing a quicker turnover, do you think, in players at the moment? I'm just wondering, you know, we, we saw Zybot Vilt beating Medvedev and he followed up 
you know, so easy to, after a big win like that to lose your next match. But how many of these players are going to be seeing in the draw in a couple of years' time? I just wonder whether there is a massive turnover at the moment. Well, I think, I mean, as we know, I mean, the, the depth in the men's game has got a lot stronger. I mean, obviously, it's been dominated right at the top for, for the last however many years. I mean, the challenger level is is tough I mean you know we're seeing the players starting to make that transition through it takes longer as well I think I think you know the players take longer to physically develop the mental side of the game as well the demands of it aren't easy at all so I don't think you know it's easy sometimes when you look at players like Alcaraz to maybe presume that that's the everyone's path and uh, I think you know I've spent a lot of time at the futures level and 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 challenger level and the standard's high but it's all about getting the consistency the opportunity obviously the higher up you are you can get more points earn more money so you can have a bigger team and and all of those things are a factor I, I think once you start to see the lower ranked players come through and have a few more shocks then that also you know the locker room talk they start to get the belief as well so yeah i think i think it's maybe no surprise that we're seeing some names that perhaps some people aren't aware of but when we're looking to promote tennis we need names that people know we need marquee names how are you going to get marquee names when there's this bigger turnover well we'll see are these one-off sort of things i mean it's extraordinary in the last three weeks or a month we've had you know two players outside the top 100 beating number two ranked players in tournaments, obviously with Alcaraz losing to Marazan in, uh, in Rome and then what happened here with Medvedev. That's pretty crazy. You're not going to see that too often. With, and I think it, maybe it was also uh, a little circumstantial. But every, everything that people say inside the game, when they look at the levels, the coaches that are you know year-round on the circuit, they will all tell you that the level from, say, 50 to 150 now, the quality of the players, their preparation, their recovery, their means they have at their disposal has improved a great deal. So there has to be more danger there. But still, you kind of in your mind's eye, you have a hard time imagining, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic in their peak losing matches like like Alcaraz, Medvedev just lost to those kinds of players. Maybe the top level right now, at least, isn't as high as it's been. In term, and maybe the young and the fact that there are players that are below have improved creates um, a little bit less of a gap week to week. But I, I have no doubt if Alcaraz stays healthy that tennis will have a superstar and there'll be plenty of people bouncing off of him for years to come but he has to stay healthy we should do a little exercise we should write down who we think will be our top five players five years from now (laughs) and see how many are in the top 40 because an awful lot of them might not be yeah well let's do it We, we we can we can certainly have a go i mean i think as you mentioned earlier chris runa for me i feel alcaraz runa sinner probably are gonna be the standout three that are, are going to look to push on perhaps but I think we you know we can't forget and underestimate how difficult what Nadal, Djokovic, Federer were able to achieve and we probably shouldn't compare that so you know they've cleaned up haven't they so they've not allowed other players to to maybe have that opportunity. And I suppose what's happening in the men's game is what's happened in the women's game for the last 10 years, that you've had quite an awful lot of people winning the biggest tournaments. Well, we've certainly seen that, haven't we? We've seen uh, a lot of new Grand Slam winners that have then you know, maybe had injuries or their rankings have, have dropped down. It's going to be interesting. I, th- I think over the next 
five years or so, it'll be really interesting to see if there are players that are dominating or if it's started to starts to get shared around a bit more. Can't uh, let the chance to talk about the Americans pass by. I mean, clay is not generally the best surface for the Americans, but Tommy Paul was a former junior champion here at Roland Garros, but he didn't get get into the third round. Taylor Fritz did, and Taylor Fritz managed the crowd really well, in particular in his uh, uh, second round match, where he uh, he had to wait to do his on-court interview, and then he said, oh, the crowd was just so great, I had to let it fire me up. They cheered so much for me, I had to make sure I won, which is a wonderful bit of irony, or sarcasm, or whatever the right word is, but in a way, fantastic way of handling a crowd that is not always um, as rational as it is passionate. <laughs> Look, I, I've known Taylor a long time. I, I mean, Taylor's tougher and feister than people realize, I think. They sort of see that cool California kind of exterior, but he's definitely got a, got a deep, beating, competitive heart inside of there. When you watched him as an undersized junior, sort of battling from the baseline and scrapping away, he came back in a lot of matches. So he's got a lot of fire inside there, and that, that was bottled up that reaction that he had at the end of that match for three hours plus. I mean, that French crowd was the last French men's player in the tournament, last French singles player in the tournament. On that sort of nighttime, after a few cocktails atmosphere in that court, and now with the new roof in place, it doesn't work yet, but it's already there. It's reverberating in there. So I think that he has had his full dose of the French language there after three plus hours. He'd had more than enough. And I don't, in some ways, I don't blame him because he kept it in, did what he had to do, got through the match when it ended somebody like Taylor's got that fire had to come out so it was going to come out in the locker room there would have been broken things or it would have happened there on the court but we'll see what kind of price he has to pay with the French public for the they'll remember that with him shushing them after beating their player so what's it like being an American in Paris I mean does being an American make a difference here or do they just judge you on who you are well it's the dream for us I mean to say American in Paris and Americans get all excited about that but it hasn't really been the case uh, on the men's side in tennis for a while has it? it used to be at times but I do think this generation of guys coming up, I mean, Taylor Fritz hadn't played much on clay in California growing up, um, in the San Diego area, but he, he really made an effort. He knew it was important because how much the circuit was played over here, and he really got into it, and he came over and stayed over in Europe a number of times and, and played the whole circuit. A lot of guys over the years have kind of come over and gone back, come over and gone back to get homesick, but he's, to his credit, you know, pushed through that. I think TFO has a good game for clay, you know, just one in Houston. He's uh, moves pretty well on it, played a lot of, on it in D.C. as a kid. Tommy Paul, you mentioned, I think has a good clay court game, you know, the French Open juniors before and, and has had some results. But Tommy doesn't have that big weapon, so I think on, on a given day he can be vulnerable. And, and I still feel the Sebi Corda is coming back from injury with the wrist problem that knocked him out in Australia when he was playing so well. Just getting back now, I believe he'll have great results on clay if he stays healthy. He's got a wonderful game for it. Um, great ball striker, can vary the heights and trajectories a lot. And I think he really, really likes clay. So I think I think those four guys for us will be will be clay court threats in the next five to ten years. One of the topics that we haven't yet got onto, I think it's been uh, probably a simmering topic in the first week, is the night sessions here. Night sessions were introduced a couple of years ago. Um, they've generally gone for one match. They brought it half an hour earlier so that more people can get home by public transport. They've been reluctant to schedule any women's matches because they feel that the crowd should get at least three sets. And therefore, the only women's matches they can schedule are those they're pretty sure will go three. And so far, they haven't scheduled any. Do you think that they're struggling with the, the concept? 
I mean, I think listening to what Amelie Moresmo, the tournament director, she said at the start, she was almost insinuating that there probably wasn't going to be any or many. The way she looked at it and the tournament looked at it was the schedule as a whole and they felt that it was it's balanced out in terms of the amount of men's and women's matches that were on the big show courts. The issue you do have, because you bring in a whole new crowd, so they're, they're buying a ticket. I mean, the obvious solution is to... Ob- to have a doubles match as well alongside the women's match because then you're obviously guaranteed more tennis. I mean, I get the fact that if you do get... I think they put Triontek on last year, didn't they? That was the only match. Uh, Corne and, uh, and Ostapenko. And they went, they did go three sets, although it was a fairly short so, three-setter. Okay, so they, they put the um, Corne on, I guess, the risk with someone like Triontek generally a match is... She could win in an hour and 20. Quick. So, you know, they're going to get criticised for that. It's a difficult dilemma, and I'm not sure we will see many or any females match. Unless they put uh, two matches on during the day session and start the night session earlier. They could even do a twilight session starting at 6 o'clock or whatever, given that a lot of French don't have their dinner until 9 or 10. I think the issue is that um, Amazon take the night match. So... They've then probably got contracts with the other television companies here in France, in uh, in Paris. So then I guess they're not going to want to only put two matches in the day. Chris, do you see a, a, a solution? I mean, for years this tournament didn't have a night session. It's a bit of a unique situation and it's also, I think it's a lot about the optics. Because if you look at the centre court or the Chatrier court uh, schedule... Every, every, every day, at the end of the day, or the end of the night, there are four matches that have been played, two of them women's matches, two of them men's matches. So there is equality in that sense, but the, the, this is a PR problem now as well because this has become a... People are counting, especially internationally. I don't think as much, there's as much furor about it in France for whatever reason, but internationally people are really counting these things, and they didn't really uh, make these points two, three years ago when they started this. So they're sort of saying, there's an issue of equality, why are you not addressing it? And I think if they keep the one match just based on the situation they have with the big stars in women's tennis could win in under an hour. It is possible. You have to have another alternative there, either two women's singles matches in a night session or, as you said, Lucy, a a women's singles and a doubles match in a reserve or whatever. But it's not going to go away, this thing. People are going to keep counting. And I understand their point of view. Also, it gets dark late here. So when do you start a night session? But um, they need to address it in a meaningful way, not just let it slide, I think. If... Monfils against Baez had been exactly the same match but the third of the day session so it had started at say 4.30 would it have been the same atmosphere? Maybe at the end but not consistently throughout the match I don't think So the night session did something also, to night that? night session tickets, I don't know the exact cost but they're expensive so the idea of getting 15 minutes of tennis, I had a friend who came for a match last year and it was short and wasn't happy because they basically felt like they got so little for their effort, they had to wait outside to get in forever as the day turned to night and coming through the, the currents of the up, upstream people coming their direction and then you only get a, a short match. Not enough value for money. But they gotta, they got to solve this, I think. It's obviously a discussion for the future. Let's look forward to week two of Roland Garros 2023. What are you expecting or what are your biggest points of interest? Lucy? Well, I think the Djokovic Alcaraz that we've already spoken about that it's going to be probably the the biggest interest I think uh, 
in the bottom half you know, it's going to be interesting to see who actually comes through that section I think there's big opportunity for a lot of the players fancy Runa in there He's, we'll see how he fares but in the other section I'm not sure so I think both halves are bringing different things to the table yeah, we're being a little hesitant about the bottom half of the men's draw because it's still in progress. I mean, uh, we're recording this a few hours before the Tiafo Zverev match, and the winner of that must feel quite good uh, going into the second week. Chris, anything jump out for you? Well, Lucy brought up the big one. Obviously, you know, Djokovic Alcaraz has been talked about for months, so I won't go more into that. But, I mean, there's there's some more eclectic ones. I mean, Hatchinov's had a good season and obviously been a very you know good major player. So. I think, you know, a Djokovic-Hatchinoff match would be, uh, for people who are insiders, another game, but I'd be interested in seeing that one. I think it would not be as straightforward as you might imagine for Djokovic. But um, I think Alcaraz is, is the thing. That's who people want to see, and he's got a potentially really, really difficult and, uh, I think, um, dynamic draw. You have to play uh, Musetti, and then we have to face um, Tsitsipas. Yeah, well, I'm and then potentially Djokovic. I'm still looking. Rune. I'm looking at Tsitsipas and Musetti as well. Yeah, be quite a four-match. Uh, it would have to run. It would it? be very impressive, and I don't think Tsitsipas and Musetti are going to just sit back and let people walk over them. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, and they have the, you know, especially Tsitsipas has the experience. Unfortunately, some of the scar tissue as well, but we know he can play on clay. He's had great success, and uh, obviously. Uh, I think it's what he wants the most. And I don't think he's played at his best yet when it mattered most. I don't think he's played his best tennis when he can. So, Lucy, who will be lifting the Coupe de Mousquetaire and who will be lifting the Coupe Suzanne Longlane? I think I'm going to be boring and go for the, the two top seeds. I think Alcaraz will come through. I think, as Chris said, he, he has got a tough draw, but it, in some ways maybe that will help him be able to play his best tennis and although Sviontek hasn't played anywhere near her best tennis, she still managed to get herself through. Obviously, Rubikina has now pulled out. She's been a, a player that has caused Sviontek a lot of trouble. But I think given the fact that she's won here twice before, I think that experience will come through. My two at the start of the tournament were Djokovic and Sabalenka. <coughs> I'm definitely sticking with Sabalenka. It's a little worried about some of the treatment Djokovic was having. If he's got a hip problem, then I'm not sure that... I can see him beating Valilias and possibly Hachanov, but whether he could beat Alcaraz, I'm not sure. Alcaraz is just so exciting, but he does go off the boil a little bit at times, and I think that's when Djokovic could really... I'm just about going to stick with my Djokovic and Sabalenka. Chris? I had uh, Rybakina and Alcaraz coming in. Um... So I'm going to stick with Alcaraz as well, although, you know, uh, I just feel like Rune has played well enough to get when he gets to the big matches this year, but he hasn't played the big matches well enough. But the, but the baseline level of play is there to win this tournament. He could do it. But I'm going to stick with Carlos. And I just feel like Igor Fiantek has been a little bit fragile this year against the, the Sabalenkas and the uh, Rybakinas. So I'm going to, I'll go with Sabalenka. I think that's what I'll pick. Before we go, Chris, you've just finished 32 years with the New York Times. I'm not trying to make you cry, but... Yeah, the glasses are off now. <laughs> um, can you pick one or two moments over the years that, that you'll be boring your grandchildren with? You know, I didn't just cover tennis all those years. I covered a lot of different sports. I know. So that's a tr- trickier question. So, so go for maybe one for tennis and one in general. 
You know, I have to say, a lot of times they say when you're young and you experience things, they're, they're stronger and more powerful. And kind of when you get old and nostalgic, it gets also powerful. So maybe the middle part, I've, it all kind of runs together. But one thing I'll never forget from the early years was um, I was in Lyon in 1991 when I had first moved to France. I had just married my wife, who's from Paris. My in-laws could care less about sports. It was very déclassé to marry a sports writer. And um, I got sent to Lyon to cover the Davis Cup final with the French against the U.S. The U.S. had Sampras and Agassi kind of coming in. What's this Davis Cup thing? Yannick Noah was the captain, as many of you will remember, I'm sure. And, and Guy Forget and Henri Leconte were lit from within with Yannick's help. And it was an atmosphere like I don't think I've ever seen since. Unbelievable joy, vibration, and just national moment. Yannick Noah leads the conga line around the stadium after it ends. And... Uh, I remember tearing up, you know. I don't tear up too much in, in my press box, but just that whole thing of seeing France have that moment after 59 years and win the Davis Cup again. And uh, I'd say uh, in more recent times, I think that Nadal Australian Open victory was, was pretty powerful, watching it come back. Last year. And Medvedev uh, in that final. Because um, of the stage in my career that I was at, having watched him all through the years, fight through all the adversity, and, and to see his spirit come out in that match the way that it did, that really hit me too. And non-tennis? Non-tennis, um, 1998 World Cup of football slash soccer when France won here as well. And I covered every game of the French with Zidane. And, and my, uh, my grandmother-in-law suddenly asked me about soccer, which had never happened before or since. That was great. And to go back to the 90s again, the Lillehammer Winter Olympics. Perfect marriage of a, of a place and, uh, and an event, winter sports in Norway and all that happening with uh, people who really knew knew their stuff, and it was an amazing experience to be there as an outsider. Well, I have a memory from just over 30 years ago, sitting next to an American journalist in the press room in Melbourne. I was typing my reports on a typewriter and faxing them, <laughs> and the American journalist sitting next to me was you. And uh, yeah, it's um, it's amazing how the tennis world has changed. That was before the Monica Seles stabbing. Security was so relaxed in those days yeah. changed you know, within a year it's a lot easier to file your stories maybe not any easier to write them that's the voice of the former new york times tennis correspondent christopher clary still though very active my thanks to him and to the british tennis coach lucy Arl. that's it for this week's atp podcast please check in with us again next week we'll be rounding up events from the second grand slam of the year which will just have concluded in the meantime, head to the ATP or Roland Garros websites for the latest news. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis.